0: Hello, I'm Rachel Botman and welcome to Trust Issues, the podcast that will hopefully challenge and change the way you think about trust. One of the aspects of trust that fascinates me the most is its relationship to risk. How can we trust ourselves to take risks that really push ourselves to the limits?
1: We have a responsibility culture. We don't have a blame culture. It's one of the most difficult things to look people in the eye and say you're not doing a good enough job Mm. because it involves having to let somebody down. So therefore, a lot of people just avoid that as a scenario and either pass the buck or carry the thought, spread the rumor and hope that enough people sort of, you know, bring that individual down.
0: Many trust issues lie in not having that kind of self-belief, the need to control everything and, I'm guilty of this, blaming someone, something or anything when something doesn't turn out as expected. But if we stay in these spaces that are completely known and comfortable to us, it can mean that we never really discover our full potential. We can get stuck. I was thinking about this idea whilst watching Drive to Survive on Netflix. It wasn't my choice, it was my husband's. And I confess, I really don't have any knowledge of cars or Formula One. But what I was really fascinated by was what enables racing car drivers to trust themselves to reach their absolute limits. And what can we learn from them about discovering our own limits? Which is why I'm so excited today to be joined by the Formula One champion, David Coulthard. Welcome David. Thank you very much. Have you seen it?
1: Uh, No I would watch a whole bunch of other stuff before I'd watch anything to with (laughs) Formula One but it's a little bit like there was a a movie a documentary on Senna and my racing career started after the death of Senna Mm. and I'd worked with him as a test driver and I'd worked with Alain Prost and so I have my own real memories of that event so I just didn't feel inclined to watch other people's memories of that moment because I had my own very strong memories.
0: Well, I was actually um, forced to watch it um, by my husband. <laughs> okay. um, I was voting, for you. Yeah, I was voting for Chef's Table, yeah. and it was his night. I, I love
1: cooking programs, oh, so I'd be all over that.
0: So in Drive to Survive, which I ended up watching the whole series with him, which he was very happy about, the piece that really fascinated me wasn't the cars. I should confess, I don't know a lot about cars, and I'm a really bad driver, um, was the mental resilience. Well,
1: statistically, women are better drivers than men. There's less insurance claims when it comes to driving on the road, from women. So yeah, that doesn't. Are apply you sure to me. you're really as bad as you suggest?
0: I I I don't know why I'm telling you <laughs> this, but I took my driving test, came home, took my car out, and ended up in the police station, and I had to call my parents because I had um, completely written it off into a fence because I turned the radio on and was changing channels, and I had to call my parents and say I passed my driving test, but I'm at the police station. Can you pick me up? And then I went on to have seven accidents. Oh my goodness, and you are a bad driver. I am a very, very bad driver. Okay, <laughs> I'm, enough glad, about we're, I'm me. glad we're not um, doing this
1: as a sort of a <laughs> carpool karaoke type, whatever they call it, you know, interview.
0: So <coughs> what really fascinates me about the drivers is the mental resilience to really push themselves to the limits and to take that level of risk. It is more than chopping off your finger. It really is life and death. So that's why I want to speak to you is really about um, sort of the psyche of risk and how you push yourself to your limits. Um, But what I'd love to know is what was your very, very best day in Formula One driving?
1: Best day was meeting my wife through Formula One. She was working as a reporter for TF1 and I remember very well her walking into the paddock in Imola, which was the scene of the, the tragic accidents of Roland Ratzenberger and Nerton Senna. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know who she was and I remember her walking and I was standing at the McLaren motorhome uh, and the uh, automatic doors were opening and closing and opening and closing and I didn't realise because I was just mesmerised as she walked through the paddock. So, uh, she didn't know me at that point and she probably <laughs> regrets ever meeting me, but um, that, that was pretty good, there. Yeah. that stands out.
0: Were you thinking about her in the race? That
1: day? Uh, no, because I, I didn't actually know her. Um, I just saw her, but then I got to know her and then a few years later we got married.
0: So do you remember the wins? I mean, I find that really... No. You don't remember I remember
1: wins. some, but not all of them. So, Do you remember the losses? Yeah, I remember mistakes more because that's your biggest source of opportunity. Uh, it's very difficult to improve on a victory because you've achieved your goal. But if you've made a mistake, mm. crashed out, made a driver mistake, or... Um, or just one of those things you don't you didn't particularly do anything wrong in terms of your decision, but just fate that day decided that you know water was going across the track and you couldn't possibly have known that mm. and you went out of the race you, you I tend to, and I think a lot of the the people I've come across in motorsport tend to be more focused on sources of opportunity, which tends, to come out of failure rather than success
0: Mm. and so is there a mistake that you think you when you look back you learnt the most
1: about yourself yeah the ones that got away where you're leading a grand prix and you make a mistake periodically you'll think about those if you're asked about it it'll come to your mind mm. um, and during my career i was always with the team and always enjoyed those moments of really sort of knuckling down and saying right we have an issue how are we going to solve this issue mm. because you know if you solve it then that's you know another step towards victory
0: so is there a mistake that someone on your team made that sticks in your mind where you're like how did that mistake happen
1: um, I don't ask the question, how did it happen? Because I know how it happened because you go through the analysis. And there was a testing crash in Silverstone in 1995 uh, where I had a steering issue, crashed and got knocked out. And I remember coming around and looking at my watch. I used to wear a digital watch with multiple alarms so I could set all my alarms for the day for various meetings. And so I wouldn't have to remember where I need to be you know alarm would go off and you go I need to be somewhere and uh, I remember looking at it and it was 10 past 10 in the morning and I was thinking that's weird so Silverstone used to start testing at 10 just for local noise issues rather than nine like like in other places in Europe and I thought I'd been testing for most of the day Mm. because I guess that's a consequence of getting knocked out but in actual fact, it was the first run. There was a steering issue. It was down to a mechanic who, when he had to take me to the medical centre, check I was OK, time I go back to the pits. And he identified the mistake. You know, this guy, I've got a grown man in front of me in tears because the consequence of a mistake like that could be, you know, ultimately a fatality. And I remember Frank Williams coming to the, the circuit as well. He didn't normally go to tests to sort of, you know, make sure that everything was in hand and I, I just remember being okay, we understand what the mistake was I'm okay, let's get the car rebuilt and later that day we were back out on track so I think when you get answers then there is no needing to ask why mm. if there wasn't an answer, then what I think we learn in sport is there isn't, especially in a technology sport there isn't always an answer mm. for something great if there is you know, an engineering solution to a problem if, a, if the car blows up And one of the skills that you develop as a driver, and certainly in that period, was if you felt the car starting to have an issue, then you would switch off straight away. Because the sooner you can catch what the failure is, Mm. then the faster the engineers can, you know, engineer a solution and um, then make sure you don't have that problem in the future. And when you're a young test driver, you tend to just keep driving until the thing blows up. Mm. But as you get more experienced, you think that's not quite right. And then, you know, park the car, find what the issue is and find an engineering solution. So I think that um, you're always sort of learning from those potential failures, real failures, and turning them into source of opportunity, Hmm. whilst obviously being in a fairly dangerous environment.
0: Hmm. So it seems like it's a sport where there's not a lot of room for
1: blame. We have a responsibility culture. We don't have a blame culture, and that's something that I've really become more aware of in retirement. And when I've been engaged working with a number of different companies since retiring, it's one of the most difficult things to look people in the eye and say you're not doing a good enough job, mm. because it involves having to let somebody down, um, and so therefore a lot of people just avoid that as a scenario, and either pass the buck or carry the thought, spread the rumor, and hope that enough people sort of you know bring that individual down. Where in in our Industry, you know, we have a, let's say a normal big team would have about 800 people. 80 would go to a Grand Prix, so you've got less than 10% of your workforce at the uh, the coal face, and everyone has a very clearly defined responsibility. If I put the car in the wall, it's driver error. So there's no point trying to hide. Front right falls off. Who's the mechanic that's responsible for that? If there's a software issue, there's a head. So people tend to put their hand up very quickly and go. Mm. That's my mistake. And that culture is one that actually becomes really empowering and that people are not then scared to acknowledge they're human because we all make mistakes. And those that hide from mistakes and try and make out that they you know, n- never make mistakes, they either are superhuman mm-hmm. or they are lying to themselves and and worse still, lying to, to their team. And if you're really, really focused about absolute performance and the power of people coming together to to compete against another group of in individuals then there's just no room for that and uh that's why i think that when you find that magic of people together where you can go look sorry that was me i know i did that same thing yesterday i can't really explain why the same mistakes happened again today but I'm on it. I'm mm. going to make sure that there'll be something different the next time. Because as sure as you make one mistake, you'll make another because sure. you're pushing, you you know, everybody's pushing.
0: Mm. And so do you think that no blame culture is unique to Formula One because part of success is pushing yourself to the limits. And if you push yourself to the limits, mistakes have to happen. Mm. And have you found it hard to sort of replicate that culture in other business ventures and other cultures that you've been in, because maybe there isn't so much so much risk or so much at stake.
1: I think that, uh, well, I can't speak for other sports, but I definitely think that because our sport is so data driven mm. and there's so much logging and transfer of data from the car, you know, even from the driver, you, you know, we you would periodically swallow. Uh, temperature sensors to be able to analyse how the body was reacting really? in places yeah. like Malaysia. Yeah, going in is a lot easier than it coming out for all these reasons. Um, how thankfully. big are they? Um, it's bigger than a normal pill. Let's say it's, it's almost like a uh, like a lozenger or something like that. So yeah. you, you know, if you if you're not good at swallowing a normal sized pill, you would have a real problem with that. But um, you, when we're racing in extreme environments, then the human performance is a huge part of the overall performance Mm. you you know as you become dehydrated during a grand prix then like you know we we are in the what would put normal people probably in hospital through dehydration we train to be in that position so we can deal with it but of course your performance your ability to make decisions trails off as you get more and more dehydrated you just Mm. don't have the uh, and if you were a taller driver like myself uh, and even for the smaller guys if you're carrying liquid to hydrate, that's performance. You know, 10 kilograms is three-tenths of a second every lap. So if you're carrying a kilo of water, then that is a quantifiable loss in time over the 60 laps or the 90 minutes of the Grand Prix. So a little bit like a jockey having to be at a certain weight. So everything is absolutely analysed to the point where, you know, you you just can't... you, You need to know through all that data where... Your sources of opportunity lie and, and where the potential failures are. So I think that is probably more than other sports, although modern football, rugby and the likes, uh, you know, they have those little sensors. So mm. you can see how far mm. someone's run, what their acceleration was. You know, you I guess you can't hide on the football field anymore being a lazy striker, you know, not running for opportunity. Because they'll see afterwards, you know, the, the midfield be able to say, Well look, you know, you only ran half a mile. Yeah. The other striker did a mile and a half. What chance can we ever find an open space to pass you the ball? Mm. I suppose. I don't play football, but so I think that data means that there's less places to hide and you either embrace that and therefore that becomes the culture of responsibility. Yeah. Um or you you don't embrace it, and you'll get found out, and you'll eventually get moved along.
0: So on this point of data, how much of it is actually, in terms of understanding the risks that you can take and how far you can push, how much of that is data-driven versus intuition, experience, and gut? So sort of head and feeling, especially as you mature as a
1: driver. The, The decision when you're out on track is ultimately how you feel, because... The engineer can present you with a car and tell you we have an upgrade, we have 15 points more downforce, which is the way we would talk about it in the industry. I don't actually know what a point means. I've never questioned it. Um, It would be much easier if they said we've got 10 kilos more downforce, more load pushing the car. But let's say using the industry terms, they said you've got 15 points more downforce. Therefore, uh, you should be able to go through that corner at 180 miles an hour rather than 175. That's all fine and well in theory. But the reality is, I'm the one that has to do it. So mm. you, if you don't feel it, then you're not going to do it. Otherwise, mm. I'd just blind trust. And that would be foolish. And I don't think that racing drivers are risk-takers. I think that we're actually risk-averse. We you know, tiptoe towards the potential of the car. And then once we've felt that potential, we're able to explore you know, our own feeling for what the car may be able to do through that corner
0: i think of people taking what i call trust leaps, so they have to take a risk Mm. into the unknown into this unknown place you really have two choices you can reduce the risk or the severity of that risk or the likelihood of that risk or you can increase someone's confidence and belief in themselves to take that risk as a driver what's going on in your head is it is it about The reduction of the risk or the increase in your confidence to really go to that limit?
1: I understand, you know, we're talking about risk because, of course, there is a risk associated with it. But the only time I think I ever spoke to the team about taking a risk would be if we were doing wet testing, because Mm. wet testing is, is a higher chance of damaging the car. You're actually going a bit slower in the wet just by the nature of the fact you go through the corners slower and, and with the wet tyres there's more drag so therefore the impact speed is going to be less so there's a greater chance of going off because corners that are flat in the dry aren't flat in the wet and therefore maybe the chance that you can go off the circuit but if you do go off you're going to go off at lower speed and therefore the impact and the, the sort of force you take through the car on your body is going to be less so there's gains and losses in that, that scenario but the only time I would ever talk about risk is w- if we were pre-season testing and you've got limited spare parts. I would say to the team, I'm prepared to take the risk of testing in the rain if you're prepared to assume that I may go off, I may damage the car, and what impact that would have on us being able to test tomorrow if it's dry. Hmm. And if the team go, look, we need data, we need to get out there, i be going, bang, let's get out there. And you probably wouldn't have an incident, but if you did... Then you didn't come back and say, I told you so. Yeah. When you come back and say, well, there you go, guys. You know, we, we rolled the dice and today it didn't work out.
0: I find it amazing that it's so precise and logical and pragmatic when mm. you're going around a track at more than 200 miles an hour and, and every race your life is really at mm. stake. Did you talk about fear if you didn't talk about risk?
1: Not really in the way that I think you would imagine. Yeah. Um, when I, when I started my career, it was through the death of Ayrton Senna. So one of the greatest drivers was killed in Imola in the May. And then uh, Monte Carlo, uh, Williams entered one car for Damon Hill. And in Barcelona, they entered two cars. So I was 24 and you know I couldn't replace Ayrton. He was you know, established as one of the best drivers in the sport. So in being given the opportunity, all I could do is try my best, which is all the team would want me to do and to see if i could show potential or the potential i'd shown in testing could be realized uh, in actual grand prix racing but in terms of of fear i think my mother would would have fear i think she had fear throughout my entire career because she wasn't in any way con- in control mm. of my decisions and i guess any parent you're fearful of your child falling over or falling off a bicycle you know so i think any parent can can relate to that type of fear I don't think it accelerates because your son or daughter ends up being a Grand Prix driver. I think that's there all the way through the, that journey. And statistically, things like 3 day eventing are more dangerous than Grand Prix racing. And a lot of people do that um, and do it with passion and enthusiasm and and, uh, and enjoyment. So having to sort of you know face up to saying to my parents, I've been given the opportunity. And, of course, on one hand, my father's delighted. On the other hand, my mother's like, oh, my goodness. Uh, right, here we go. The the, mm. the journey continues. But statistically, again, uh, you can, you know, there's 10,000 people get killed on the roads each day around the world, which as a percentage of the population is a very small amount. But it would suggest, though, that you're a much bigger risk uh, out on the roads than you're ever going to be a, on a racetrack.
0: Mm. But is there like, a tension between like understanding fear and and not being frightened and then being fearless which takes you into the point of being reckless because this yeah. is something that struck me watching Netflix is and and this is my own sort of assumptions i always assumed i'm sorry if i offend you that ra- racing car drivers were adrenaline junkies and mm. that and they were so measured and and meticulous and and calm and it didn't seem like they were fearless or reckless but that they had such an understanding of their own fears and had learned how to manage that so that the fear had almost disappeared is that so how do you manage that line between knowing how much fear you can cope with but then being completely fearless to the point that you're reckless
1: well i think that that's a key thing if you were fearless and clearly there are people in in life that are mm-hmm. because they do extraordinary things that i would would never be comfortable doing you know even down to the these I don't know what you call it, where they climb up tall buildings and sort of hang off with one well, arm. Well, that's just ridiculous. Yeah, right? well, that, absolutely, that, that, would, that would seem s- a bit ridiculous Superhuman, to me. yeah. yeah uh, but they clearly are able to park their fear. Mm. You know, I find it extremely uncomfortable just to watch that because the consequence is death. Nothing in between, if you're falling from that height, where there's a very high chance of surviving a crash. So uh, I think that... I don't. I've never raced with someone that I considered fearless, and you know, I was the chairman of the Grand Prix Drivers Association for five or six years. Michael as a co-director, Michael Schumacher, um, and he, in that environment, everyone spoke very openly about mm. things they might be concerned about. But it would be a kerb on the track that could launch the car. It would be little things like that. It it wasn't, oh, we're not going to race in Monaco because if you make a mistake, you hit a barrier. That's part of the consequence of making a mistake there. And in actual fact, having a crash, as long as the crash keeps going, the energy is low. Mm. So it may look spectacular, but in the safety cell, it's not too bad. The biggest risk really is the driver's head Mm. uh, being exposed, which they've now brought in the halo in Formula One in the last year and that that covers that. But um, no, we, we were, we're not, Um, fearless we're not sort of it's an engineering industry of which there is a physical limit to how fast a car will go through a corner Mm. and that varies depending on the individual cars and varies depending on the how new or old your tires are it varies depending on how much fuel you have on board so we take all of those things into consideration and we feel, you know, the, bo- the car is an extension of your body. You're strapped to the car. So if the car jumps, you jump. Mm. Obviously, you can't make the car jump like a BMX rider would make his bike jump. Um, but we're so together that over the years of driving, if the if the left rear moves, it's like, you know, your shoulder moving. If, if the front moves, it's like me bringing my feet back. It, it becomes an extension of your body. Mm. So you become very sensitive to that vehicle, which is strapped to you, and in the same way that if you and I were walking on the sidewalk and it was icy, you would you would know to take a different step mm. because, oh, and the next step might be a little bit of ice, you wouldn't be maybe quite as wide stepped if that's mm. an expression. Yeah. Um, you you might take little baby steps in comparison, and we just do that naturally because that's what we've adapted through life to do. And it's the same in the race car. So we're, we're not risk takers, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. You know, Michael didn't win all those races by being uh, fearless and flamboyant. You know, um, Lewis Hamilton hasn't won his sixth title by doing things that aren't physically possible. Mm-hmm. It is physically possible, but his sensitivity level to where the limit is is just a wee bit higher than his team is. And that wee bit higher, it's, it's you know, we're talking... Well, his teammate was faster than him at the last Grand Prix, he out-qualified him. But over the course of the season, they're probably separated on average by one-tenth. Yeah. Which around, a, you know, whatever it is, three-mile track is a tiny amount. You know, it's even smaller than the difference between Hussein Bolt winning and whoever the chap that finished second is. Because yeah. we never remember who finishes second. It's all about the winners.
0: So on that note, um, the other part that I'm absolutely fascinated by is your teammates. Your teammate is your competitor. Hmm. And it seems like you've had an interesting relationship with your teammates and Miko in particular. You were second to him, was that right? Like how I don't know like any other industry or sport where you sort of have to accept that you're in second place and that the person who's on your team is also your competitor. Can you can you talk about that?
1: Well, I don't know what it's like to be in other professional sports. So therefore, this is my reality. But the the name teammate, of course, is wrong because he's not your mate. Uh, His success is your failure because you all want to win. And if if, if, I'm having success, my teammate's having a bad day because clearly two people can't win. So it is a, a bizarre one. Mika and I were teammates for seven years. And I think, I, I don't know, off the top of my head, um, this is exactly correct or not, but he was I was in front of him in the championship three times and he was in front of me in the championship four times or I was in front of him four times, he was in front of me three times. But crucially, he was in front of me the two times that the car was capable of winning the driver's championship. So we won a constructors' championship together. But he won the driver's championship and I finished second. So I don't lose any sleep over that. The goal was to try and win. Or equally, the goal was to race at the highest level and find out how good I was. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, on reflection, I can say I was good enough to be there, I was good enough to win races, but I wasn't good enough to win championships. And therefore, journey completed, that was the first phase of my life. And then you move on to, to the next things, which is less publicly uh, competitive. Mm. But yeah, it is. It's a it's a weird scenario because you speak very openly about the car and about the engineering challenges because you need to you need two heads to drive forward the development of the car. And even though we have all that data, the only voice of the car is the driver. Mm. The data will give you you know, there's so much data. If you don't tell the engineers where to focus then they could spend weeks looking at a single lap, never mind everything that's happened during a Grand Prix weekend. So you you have to be very focused on what is the thing that's stopping you go faster. And pe- working with people like Adrian Newey, he was very good as an engineer, because you would come in, and if you explain what the car is doing around the, the lap, it's doing a little bit of everything. It's mm. it's riding poorly, it won't turn in, it won't brake, it won't accelerate. If you actually read all the comments but the key thing is what is the thing that's stopping you go faster and it might be high speed understeer so you you get rid of all the noise of all of the issues and again in an industry like that you don't spend a lot of time going good job you spend a lot of time going this can be better how Mm -hmm. can we make this better even in success you know lewis hamilton has, has just won his sixth title and they had the celebration even once he's finished all his obligations to the media he'd go into a debrief with the team and uh, the senior engineer would start with well good day in the office Uh, Valtteri won uh, the race Lewis has won his sixth world title well done team right Lewis lap three you lost half a second explain and Lewis would go yeah sorry about that I went wide at turn four Valtteri at your first pit stop you came in too long we lost 0.3 of a second because Mm. all the guys had to reposition sorry i'll I'll not do that next time then the drivers will have the opportunity to go um to my engineer why did you talk to me in the middle of turn 10 you know you don't talk to me in the middle of fast corners Mm. and you know go yep sorry i was i I got the information i wanted you to have it so it's a process of constructive criticism Mm. which what i've realized in my life outside of, of formula one is that people really struggle with any form of criticism and especially in the modern society where everybody has to be... Everyone's got something. That, why do you that think needs. that
0: is, though? Because it's... it's...
1: Ooh, um, I, I don't have an answer for why that is beyond uh, society wanting to support everybody, and that would seem like a good thing. I think you know, we none of us has to be born. We are. And if you're lucky, you're born into a comfortable environment that gives you opportunity. But, of course, a lot of people are born into adversity. Yeah. And therefore, I totally embrace given that no one has that choice that you know sort of reducing the gap between the haves and the have nots is a, is a is a brilliant thing and i would definitely you know embrace that um i think i was born into a to a very fortunate opportunity in life um but what i don't support in as in as much as this you know, we, we schools not having competitions anymore because you can't have somebody win and somebody lose. Or Actually, seventh place. Yeah. Well, my
0: daughter got like a cup. It's pathetic. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's like, you know, it's not right. But I mean, for young, it, yeah. ki-
1: young, young kids, it's great because I think it inspires them. But I think once you start getting into young adults, yeah, wherever that age is defined, and and history would suggest uh, that women become young adults before men, yeah. Um, but whatever that age is, I just think in in the world as we know it it's, you know, it's a competitive world. And is isn't a world of everyone's the same and everyone gets the same. With those who have um, inspiration and those who've got desire and those that seek out opportunity, it tends to favour those those people over those that don't have desire or energy or need to, to do things. So I feel comfortable in a society where those that work a wee bit harder get a wee bit more whatever that wee bit is you know I guess in most people's lives it would be considered money but it might be other things as well
0: but I think what's so interesting is that people are uncomfortable giving the criticism and they're uncomfortable receiving the criticism and it's actually when you ask for it like so when I say no I I don't want to know what I did well I actually want to know like what could I improve Mm. or um People are uncomfortable, like they need full permission, but until we really understand our flaws or what we could do better, we'll never understand our full potential. So I think that discomfort is so interesting.
1: Yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, when I retired um, from Formula One at the end of 2008, I started working for the BBC as a pundit. And I didn't. What's know, a pundit? A commentator. Really a co- well, it wasn't a commentator. You were called a pundit. I've right. never really understood what a pundit was. Anyway, so um, we did a rehearsal uh, to work out that we could actually listen to the years and then fired off down to Melbourne to become a pundit. And they were, I would, just before we went live, I was thinking, no one's really told me what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, there, there was an assumption that I would talk about Formula One and therefore I'd know what to do. But it was interesting for me because having been interviewed many times as a sports person, it's a completely different thing to interview people. Mm. And even today, there'll be times where I'm interviewing someone where as they're answering, I have got no question ready. What do even, you do? Even, it's, it always comes to me it does, come, <laughs> it to you, does yeah. come to you but there are many many times there's that complete blank of can they please let them keep talking a bit longer till something comes to, to ask them but anyway um, do you enjoy so, that discomfort no not at all <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> it's completely out of my comfort zone but anyway did the first broadcast uh, went back to the uh, the TV compounds to have a debrief and and I said well well I went back assuming we'd have a debrief when are we sitting down to do the team talk about when I was out of position or the cameraman didn't do what we suggested and uh, the senior person said no no we don't do that uh, they actually said oh this is the BBC we don't do that but I think he just meant this is television we don't do that and I was so surprised and disappointed that that sort of catalyst that, that moment had me decide that, that we can do this better Yeah, and it led to uh, me partnering with two two people, Jake Humphrey and Sunil Patel, and starting Whisper Films. And Whisper Films uh, has grown over the last decade to the point now where we produce Formula One for Channel 4 and various other sports, women's football, women's rugby, NFL. Uh, we're doing Paralympics 2020. And as I see how that company's grown, and I know very little about broadcasting <laughs> beyond being a pundit now, a commentator, but the confidence to to push in that direction was I knew very little about designing and building a racing car, but I knew how to drive it. Mm. So you, as long as you know what your role is within an industry, you don't have to be an expert in that industry. And and that's been borne out, I think, in, in realising that, that that theory or that belief that you didn't sit down and say you made a mistake and talk about it openly was so alien to the sporting world where criticism... Is the first thing that really comes, hmm. and if you can't take that, you probably wouldn't have got to the point where you're a professional sportsman, especially in a team environment, because you you would. How do you? Nobody's born perfect, hmm. and no one, no, you know, nobody starts in their sport at the top. They, they, you know, they start and work their way up if they're good and they're focused. So, uh, you know, again, in, my, in retirement, meeting and seeing a lot of different sports people and spending time with them, and having been in sports, you can have a conversation with them which is different I guess to the way they would talk to someone that hasn't got a sporting background Mm. and I think that thread is there throughout all of them they're very self-analytical self-critical, rely on their team thank their team which can sometimes seem like the cliche of I'd just like to thank my team Mm. but actually it's a public stage moment for them to to really acknowledge them and and I truly believe it's sincere
0: Mm. So just on retirement you retired... 2008
1: end of 2008.
0: And your son was born that yeah did that play yeah. a role like did that change what was at stake?
1: I knew I was stopping uh before he was conceived, and I believe he was conceived at the Australian Grand Prix, and I really put my back into it um with a desire to want to be a to be a father, which um, with the
0: woman that you saw on the track,
1: yeah, with Karen, um, yeah. yeah my wife yeah. and um so again, because I was determined at that stage to become a father mm. I think that has an effect on, mm. on just life and, and, and how you're, you're doing things mm. uh, so the fact that he was born just after retired I wanted to be a father after I stopped racing and it, he was born I think a couple of weeks after I stopped racing so. but I, I went back to, to do some German touring car racing um, 10, 11, 12 but that's fairly low level low risk and it was kind of fun to take him along and do all that sort of thing mm. he's just started karting Has he? Yeah, which is uncomfortable.
0: Really? Yeah. He's wearing a helmet and...
1: Yep, he's doing all that. He's had his first little podium in in a race in France. And I love the cultural differences uh, across Europe because uh, for finishing third, he got a little trophy and a magnum of rosé. I did For
0: a (laughs) 10-year-old, you know,
1: in Britain, that would never, you know, they'd get, I don't know, a sweetie or a fizzy drink. But in France, it's like, no, this is our... We make great wine, of course. We'll give them alcohol. Do you see the risk for him? Of course I do, mm. and I uncomfortably accept that because mm. how can I say no if he's wanting to do it? I'm not encouraging him to do mm. it, um, but he wants to be a racing driver. So
0: so when you think about the success in your life mm. in driving and then you've had this phenomenal career mm. post-retirement, and I wonder if this is something you're going to try and consciously pass on to your son, do you think so much of about that has been understanding yourself constant improving improvement where the mistakes are made so you can keep pushing things to the limits is that something that rings true and how do you pass that on
1: the the benefit of youth is you don't know what you don't know and so when I started in my professional career I was youthful and of course today I'm 48 um, and and I assume more than halfway through my usable life Um, so in retirement it's given me the chance to in other business and doing what I do to do today to be more I'm still involved but I'm looking slightly more from the outside and you see things that you wouldn't have seen when mm. you're t- totally focused on as you should be on achieving uh, success so that journey and then having the opportunity to go and work with different companies and and talk to them about risk or to talk to them about teamwork then Uh, a couple of years ago I decided to put those thoughts down the the, uh, author that I worked with on my biography uh, in 2007 Martin Roach I approached him and said look I've I've worked various scripts that I've used over the last seven or eight years is there a way because you're good at writing books and I'm not is there a way we can compile this we can put it into sort of life lessons it isn't just about being a racing driver particularly Mm. but of course there'll be many of the examples are through racing and the the desire to do that was actually born out of if i'd had that knowledge when i was 24 i think i would have made a lot of better decisions in my in my career and having a son um i thought this could serve as a sort of you know this is what i learned and these are the, the, the the things um or the or the way i make decisions so that, so anyway the, the, we have got this book out called The Winning Formula which is kind of a nice name I thought yeah and, it's a great name uh, eh? and I, that has a lot of examples in there so what I would say to, to our son today is that there's someone else out there with the same talent as you so what's going to define success or failure for you is how hard you work hmm. and if you don't work very hard then it's logical the same talented person who works a wee bit harder should in theory get better results so it's, it's in your hands the, the natural talent will be what it will be the opportunity will be created but in the end you've got to drive the cart we can't drive it for you you've got to work on your fitness and it's not a you know I'm not, i haven't got him training or doing anything like that mm. but i'm just explaining this to him now because i i remember having conversations with my father when i was you know around his age and i was a teenager and i still remember a lot of the, the things he advised me at the time which i've used in my own journey and uh, some of the things he said which are are not relevant to, to to what we do today, so you just ignore those, and that's the way society evolves. And you know, people, families hand the baton from one generation to the next.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's um, it's a really good note to end on because I have a similar belief that one of the most powerful things you can give your children is self-belief and the belief that it really is in your hands. It's not circumstances or blaming the rest of the world when things don't turn out the way that you expect or the way that you want. So I could ask you a million more questions and advice on how to become a better driver. Um, (laughs) Don't ever get in the car with me, not that it's ever going to happen. But um, thank you so much for your time, David. I really appreciate it. Thank you. When I was talking to David, what was going on through my mind was the conversation I'd had with Ant Middleton and then later on with Adam Grant. With Anne, he spoke so much about a quest, really, to really discover his own limits, to understand sort of the makeup of fear so that he could become comfortable in that space and see how far he could go. And David was talking about something similar. I mean, the fact that he doesn't even think about risk or see the sport of risky is amazing to me and then the link to Adam was that you have his obsessive quest for feedback and that as he gets more successful it becomes harder and harder for him to receive criticism and we heard that from David in terms of you know how in Formula One this is is part of their culture it's part of what makes teams successful but as he's left the sport he's discovered that it's really hard for people to receive and give criticism But he understands that it's in that space of feedback where he will discover the most about himself and that he learns more from his mistakes than from his successes and that he's applied that on and off the track. And the thing that will really stick with me is that he doesn't remember the wins and the victories. He only remembers the mistakes. If you enjoyed the show, I'd be super grateful if you could spread the word by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Rachel Botsman's Trust Issues is co written and co produced by Phoebe Adler Ryan and mixed, mastered, and edited by Matt Hill. The theme song is Happy Life by Freddie, and the show is made possible by the brilliant team at YMU. See you next Monday for another episode of Trust Issues.